Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to regular uh, panelists here on Faith Matters and established scholars within the Amdiya Muslim community. Gentlemen, Assalamu Alaikum, welcome to Faith Matters once again. Just in terms of a brief introduction to my immediate right, of course, is Qasid Muin Saib. He's a missionary here in the UK and also part of the Amdiya Archive and Research Center. Welcome, Qasid Saab. To his right, of course, is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Saib, who's the president of the Qazar Board, the Board of Jurisprudence from prudence for the Amdiya Muslim community here in the UK. Gentlemen, welcome to Faith Matters. And we'll start with our first question, which comes from Imran Saab, who's in Germany. Assalamu alaikum, Imran Saab. Um, his question's uh, sort of a bit of scenario setting here as well. Um, he talks about certain situations that I'm sure we all come across. And he says, for human beings, it's sometimes hard to differentiate in one's own actions what maybe seemed as someone acting out of sheer self-respect for themselves, uh, showing restraint, um, that others may actually take that self-restraint as a kind of uh, element of arrogance being displayed. And he's sort of balancing that, with rightly so, that within Islam, arrogance is perceived as a very, very negative characteristic of a human being. So he says, you know, how do you balance this, Dr. Saab? If I could start with you, <clears throat> self-respect is an important attribute. Mm. But at the uh, same time, you know, arrogance is also something which Islam rightly s s says it shouldn't be part of what humans should display. Yet I think he's also talking in the context of human perception rather than what Allah Ta'ala actually thinks of an individual. Absolutely. I mean, for an onlooker, it sometimes may be quite difficult to tell whether a person is being arrogant in a certain situation or whether that is just his demeanor that is his, the way he portrays himself for instance you may have a very a person who is in fact quite shy and who may not carry on conversation may not mix very freely and somebody may look at him and say that that person is quite arrogant in the in respect mm -hmm. because he has this aura about him he does not mix and mingle with uh, other people and therefore there is an aspect of arrogance in that person's character whereas it might be completely something quite completely different. So for an onlooker, it is sometimes very difficult to judge that. In fact, of course, Allah knows the hearts of people and he is the one that who is able to see whether that is arrogance or not. But Islam at the same time uh, abhors arrogance of every, in every aspect. And because arrogance is such a thing that it actually does not let your heart become humble in any respect. So that is important aspect that humility is an important aspect of man's character and when he interacts he should be always humble in, in that respect. Um, 
when you talk about arrogance, you talk about considering yourself superior to those who you are uh, in, intermingling with. So if you consider that you are better than someone because of your, maybe your, because of the uh, education that you've had, or perhaps of your financial status, or perhaps of your good looks, and you consider that that is because you're better than that other person in the street, then that is arrogance, and you yourself know about that very, very rightly. So it is for each and every person for himself to make sure that he does not have an element of superiority in that respect, that maybe he has been given these God-given talents, that he should not consider that that is because of some something to do with his character, but he should always realize that he has been endowed with these uh, aspects by God Almighty, and therefore, on the one hand, being grateful to God for having give, given these, but at the same time, using that uh, for the benefit of those people who are around him, without considering them to be inferior and without these characteristics. So he has a difficult balance mm -hmm. to always play with, and therefore his character should come out that he is humble in every respect and not show arrogance in any part of his character. Zakumla, Dr. Saab. If I could, uh, pick up on this issue of humility. Sometimes, uh, and I'm <coughs> going to be very blunt and practical here, some people sort of keep telling you how humble they are, but them telling you that they're humble actually is a yep. display of arrogance, if I could put it that way. You know, humility is seen through action um, rather than someone telling you that they're, you know, the most humble person you've ever met. And uh, that, that has to be balanced as well, that humility shouldn't mean that you lose all sorts of self-respect, that you don't stand up for your own principle, don't stand for your own sort of protection of your own character. But it's a, as Dr. Saab said, it's a challenging balance to strike. Absolutely. I mean, like you've said, I've always agreed with this, actually, because at times you're, when you come to a level where you're so humble, you hit, a, well, you hit a level where you're actually showing arrogance, where you're saying that I don't do this, I don't do that, you know. I'm, and this, this varies from culture to culture. I, I know in, um, you know, where we come from, in Pakistan, um, a lot of the time when you're talking in Urdu, the, 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 the method of speaking in Urdu, you, you would, um, there is a lot of humility in that. But that humility, that um, the wordy humility, at times can be very surf, you know, it can, it can be very surficial. It's not actually so superficial, superficial, kind of, yeah. superficial. Now that has to be borne in mind that what you're saying shouldn't be, you know, contradicting what the actual truth is. Now, th this reminds me of, uh, you know, a hadith of the Holy Prophet wasalam, in which the Holy Prophet wasalam, defined the very fine line, you know, the very definition between the d distinction, sorry, between self-respect and uh, arrogance. He said that a person with an ant's weight of arrogance will not enter paradise. So a companion at that time, he thought it appropriate, and he asked that, uh, Ya Rasulullah, um, man likes to wear, you know, good clothing, and he likes to wear good shoes, you know, so he likes to dress up nicely. So the Holy Prophet wasalam, said that, in Allah jamilun yuhibbul jamal, that Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty, but Arrogance literally means ridiculing and rejecting the truth and despising people. Mm -hmm. So he said there is a very subtle difference between your own modesty, your own waqar, as we say, in, or, mm. you know, self-respect and arrogance. And the Holy Prophet said that, uh, you know, he said there are three things that we can learn from this hadith. Number one, that you should take care of one's dignity 
and uh, modesty, which is not arrogance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like we see our role models, we see at times that they will, I mean, especially when we look at uh, Hazur, you know, mm -hmm. very elegant personality and um, very modest, very humble, but at the same time, you know, there is that element of, um, of uh, dignity. Dignity is not arrogance. What is arrogance is, and this is what we, another thing we learn from this hadith is that one's ego shouldn't be such mm -hmm. that he thinks ill of others or he demeans other people or he thinks that what the other person is saying mm -hmm. is ridiculous. And the Holy Prophet ﷺ has taught us this in another place <coughs> that if you can learn something even from a small child, then your humility should accept the fact that you've learned something from that young child. And the third thing that we learn from this hadith is that you should be good to your fellow beings and you shouldn't think ill of them, rather that you should be good to them and you should be as humble as possible. And this should be like you've mentioned through your actions rather than words. We can say as many things, but actions, definitely, they speak louder they than speak words. Speak louder than words. Yeah. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks to both of you. Um, and as you rightly said, it's about, you know, not, not just in your heart of hearts, you know, and any individual will know. It's that relationship with God, and it's for God to judge us all as we all strive to become better human beings. My thanks also to uh, Imran Saab from Germany for your question. Um, our next question also comes from Germany, from Zafar Rashid Sahib. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, thank you for your kind comments about faith matters. His question's twofold, but probably interrelated, and uh, we'll take them together. Um, he's asking, uh, and it's, this can be a very wide question, uh, <laughs> well, in the interests of other questions, we'll, we'll put a time limit on it as well. He's asking, what's the difference between good and evil, and how can you tell? And ultimately, the whole essence of morality, is God the ultimate source? I mean, I suppose taking the second question first and leading into it, that obviously everything good comes from God and God does, we often talk about codes of conduct, moral codes, moral authority. Um, things could be said to be acceptable, but is there morality behind it? Is it morally right? Is it ethically right? Dr. Saab, what's the basis, first of all, the answer to the question, is God the source of morality? Well, God is the source of all goodness, as mm. you have rightly said, and uh, we have all the characteristics and all the names that uh, relate to Allah the Almighty, the creator of everything, and uh, everything comes, emanates from God as the root of everything, and it is for us to be able to, uh, you know, be able to attach onto that and then see in the surroundings and the creation that he has created for us as to what is the goodness that he has created for us and keeping away from that goodness, what is the evil of that. Mm -hmm. It's like um, sunlight and darkness, that there are, these are not two different entities as such, but where we have light, that is, or we see goodness, and where we have lack of light, that is darkness, that is lack of, lack of goodness. So we have to look at life with those sort of prisms in our eyes and maybe look at it uh, as, as such. It is for man himself to be able to judge mm. in every situation as far as what is goodness and what is evil. And he is able to do that on, on, on many stages. He can do it from the perspective of religion, what, is, what religion teaches him. Uh, when we look at Islam, what the teachings of Islam are with regard to goodness and what is regard to evil. When God Almighty said to the angels that I am going to create a successor in the angels said, are you going to create something that will create disorder? And God said that I know what I'm going to create. So that is the creation of goodness that Allah the Almighty has created for us. 
and that is what we have seen from the creation of, of mankind. So when we look at our own selves, we have this capacity in our own selves as well to be able to attach to goodness or to be misled. And these are two paths that have been given to us by God, God, God Almighty. We have a whisperer in our whis who whispers evil things into our ears and into our hearts. This is the satanic side of, uh, of man, if you would like, that there is a Satan in every person. Mm -hmm. He runs in our blood. We know this from the Holy Prophet وسلم, uh, who said that uh, there is a Satan inside me and the, and the companions were surprised. Said, oh, Prophet of Allah, Satan inside you as well? He said, yes, but my Satan has submitted. Mm -hmm. So that um, all that has been curbed, all the evil inclinations have been curbed and therefore there is only goodness in mind. And this is what man can do, that he can curtail, curb those evil inclinations and therefore once those, those are curbed, nothing but goodness is left for him and this he <coughs> follows by following the moral code of his religion and by following the teachings and commandments of God Almighty. Dr. Sam, that's very clear. I'm just sort of moving the discussion on. I mean it's interesting, you know, too often this whole question is looked about through the prism of faith alone but even if you look at society and wider society there's often that debate between the moral authority to do something or not. And even if you look at justice systems, they are again based on doing what is legal against what's illegal, doing something which is right or doing something which is wrong. And they seem to emanate again from the roots that we find in all faiths in, in terms of the moral authority. Um, people sometimes get very confused with that, that how can you actually sanction something? And, and you know in your hearts, quite clearly sometimes you've done something which yes by all realms of sort of authority vested within a country or a power vested within a country you're, you're doing something according to the law but it often lacks as people term it the moral authority behind doing it. I think I mean um, definitely when we're in society we realize that something is wrong and we know that we you know mm. when you're on the road for instance yeah. you know that something that you do on the road, the behavior that you should be uh, you know, portraying on the road, at times you know that something, I mean, for someone mm -hmm. who is a learned driver, you know when you're exceeding the, 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 the speed the limit. limit. You know when you've hit the speed limit because your subconscious tells you that you're going faster. Even if you're not looking at the speedometer, you, you know, know that it. you're going mm. faster than what you should be doing. You're, going, you're breaking the law in essence. So at times when you've learned something over a course of time, when you're taught something, mm. over a period of time, you do realize that that is something wrong and when, once you've learned it. But religion, in fact, it's interesting to note here that religion does come in because the Holy Quran has said this very thing. In um, one place, the Holy Quran says, فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا That the soul has been taught the differentiation or the, the dis distinction between right and wrong. In another place, you know, the Holy Prophet when he was asked about piety, the Holy Prophet said that you should ask your hearts regarding this. Because he says that piety is that which contents the soul and comforts the heart, whereas sin is that which causes doubts and perturbs the heart, even if people pronounce it lawful and, gives you, and give you mm -hmm. verdicts on such matters again and again. From this hadith and the, the Quranic reference that I've given, we understand from an Islamic perspective that man has been taught what is right and what is wrong from the very, you know, from birth he can... He's, he's been given the capacity to be able to differentiate right from wrong. You know, and there are certain moral 
conduct which man would never go near because he knows in, his, in the heart of his heart, which the Holy Prophet said, that when you do ask your heart, your heart will always tell you whether this is right and whether this is wrong. And um, I think, if, if you permit me, I just wanted to read out something that the Promised Messiah Islam has, read out, has uh, written in his book, Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, because this whole question of Zafar Rashid Sahib, um, it has been answered um, in the philosophy of the teachings of Islam, very interesting. The Promised Messiah Islam, he states, he states that a person who denies the existence of God can yet exhibit good moral qualities, such as to be humble of heart, to seek peace, to discard evil, and not to resist the evil monger. Many animals have a gentle disposition and can be trained to become wholly peaceful and not to react savagely to chastisement. And yet we cannot call them human, let, an let alone humans of high status, in the same way, a person who is entirely misguided and even suffers from some vices can exhibit these qualities. So the Promised Messiah has, has dis made a distinction between animals mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know, human beings. He says that good moral deeds can be done by even animals. Mm -hmm. So there is something even beyond that that man has been created for. And when you ponder over this, and only mm -hmm. once we've pondered over this thing can we realize our actual purpose for being here on earth as human beings. And that is because we have the capacity to go beyond that. And that is the, the search of a divine being, the search of the, you know, the source of all uh, sources ultimately. And that is to understand our purpose for being created, which is the worship of the divine, uh, the God, uh, God Almighty. Gentlemen, my thanks also to Zafar Rashid Saab for his question. Um, we're going to stay in Germany, it's a German hat-trick here. Um, mm. Being English, I suppose, football brings back painful or good memories sometimes, but talking of a German hat-trick is always, always challenging. But we're not talking in football terms, and it's my delight to welcome and say assalamu alaikum to Masavar Aziz Sahib from Germany. For He's got a couple of questions for us, and he's uh, quoting verse 73 um, from the Holy Quran. Uh, and from Surah Al-Azab, and I'll quote the English translation, quotes, Verily we offered the trust to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, but they refused to bear it and were afraid of it. But man bore it, indeed he is capable of being unjust to and neglectful of himself. End of quote. Um, Dr. Saab, if I start with you, the first question Musavir Saab is asking is, what is meant by the word trust referred to in this verse, that man undertook but nature refused? Well, it is the association with uh, God, <coughs> excuse me, God Almighty. It is the message that was given. You see, man is a superior being to anything else that God has created, and he has the capacity to be able to realize who his creator is and what his commandments are. So man has that special link with uh, Allah the Almighty, and it is because of that that he was given the trust of the message of uh, Allah the Almighty, and that is um, what is meant here. That's very clear. The second part of his question from Musabir Saib, if I could come to you, is uh, he's asking why accepting this is an unjust and neglectful decision by man. Does not man just have a choice to bear it or not? It's interesting, actually, because these words have been targeted. I mean, the, the exact words in Arabic are zaluman and jahulan, which mm -hmm. literally means someone who inflicts pain upon himself. And jahulan comes from, you know, the word johal. Yeah. which in its own right, that, that word itself means ignorance. But in this time, it would mean ignorant of, uh, you know, 
for your own of your own sake. People have targeted this to mean that people or Muslims blindly follow the Islamic teachings, but that is not the case. If you look at the words in its proper context, what is being said here is that man is such a person who, um, I mean, having heard something, he follows it, disregarding the circumstances, the unforeseen circumstances, which at times may be so difficult and um, tough to endure, as we see in the you know, case of, I mean, the, the most noble of all examples, the Holy Prophet and other prophets as well, <coughs> peace be upon them all, the Khulafa uh, of the respective prophets and the companions, the people who followed their religions. They were such people, even today we find, in, among Ahmadi Muslims as well, who can give all forms of sacrifice. And they definitely fall under the category of Zuluman and Jahulan, who are those people who disregard their own self. And they are, I mean, they've heard something, they listen to it, they accept it. And, you know, disregarding all forms mm. of difficulties, they endure um, pain, suffering. For what? For a noble cause, for the cause of God Almighty, for the cause of um, establishing peace ultimately in the world and to bring harmony among people. So this is the actual definition of this verse and man has accepted it and that is one of man's qualities. I mean, it's not just among Muslims you find these people, but these people are everywhere. And it's for us to show to them the truth of religion, the truth about God, the truth about our creation here on earth, because those people, and you know, uh, like I've said, there are many human beings who bear this attribute of being selfless in the, in, in the way of uh, whatever cause they may be uh, living for. So, Zakumullah for that, again, very clear. So, in essence, that if someone literally read, and unfortunately there are those who take these things literally without the putting it into the context that you've just explained, what is in effect saying is there are people and being selfless and devotion that is shown under what trying circumstances. It may be of personal loss to oneself, be it financially, be it through sometimes their own personal self, but nevertheless it's done for something which is a much higher reward as well. And people, that's, that's very clear. And I think uh, it's important again to underline the principle of ensuring that verses of the Holy Quran, it's the unaltered word of God, but nevertheless, the, the, these verses need qualification in terms of the the seed, the commentary, which then yeah. puts these verses into context. Th this is this is what the Promised yeah. Messiah, in fact, I mean, I should um, attribute this to Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, he's written this in his writings, that this is something which is being targeted uh, by non-Muslims, that this is what it means, blind mm -hmm. following. But in fact, this is an attribute of not just Muslims, but you know, all okay. of mankind, that every human being bears this capacity. It's just for us to find that um, intrinsic, that, that attribute within mankind, within man. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, and my thanks also to Musavir Aziz Sahib for his question. Uh, we return to Shaw's domestic for our next question. Comes from Bushra Mahmoud Saiba from the United Kingdom. Um, this is something I think we'll go to, Dr. Saab, with it concerns the issue of divorce. And she's again painting a particular scenario here or situation that the divorce which is uh, instigated by the husband to a wife is referred to talaq in Islam and that there's three stages to this particular. Unfortunately, there are some who interpret this as literally saying the word three times and it's done, which is of course 
not the case, and perhaps it would be helpful, mm -hmm. Dr. Sava, if we could just briefly explain <coughs> that as well. But in the context of the question, she's asking that if the husband has actually conferred the first stage of that talaq, but during this, the intervening period, his intentions were not known, and the husband subsequently passes away. In such a scenario, would the particular wife be considered the legal widow or a divorcee? Well, you see, the talaq, as you have said, is a pronouncement that is given by the husband when he is divorcing his wife. And in Islam, the right to divorce was given both to the husband and to the wife, but in practicality, the process is slightly different. Uh, in far as the talaq is concerned, when a husband pronounces either verbally or by writing a divorce to his wife, then there is a period which is a cooling off period as such of mm -hmm. three months following that pronouncement from that date. So after the three months have elapsed, this is the idda period, this is the waiting period, then that talaq becomes operative, becomes final as far as that talaq is concerned. And after that, the parties are obviously no longer husband and, and wife mm -hmm. beyond, beyond that time. However, if the husband does pass away before the end of that three-month period, then one is not going to be sure as to whether that husband would have reconciled with his wife before that uh, period had uh, expired. So as far as the uh, validity of that divorce is con concerned, the husband and wife are still considered uh, as a pair, and therefore the wife is not divorced if the husband has passed away because he might have rescinded that talaq before the end of that three-month period. So as far as in this scenario is concerned, she would still be considered to be married to that person, and had he died, then she was still his, his wife. The process of talaq is sometimes confusing for some people because we, we, we are told that there are three talaqs that are permitted to man. That is correct, but the period is important. The period of three months from the first talaq to the end of that period is, is, is what is, is counted as the first talaq. It is only considered as a first talaq because after that, the husband and wife can remarry each other with a new solemnization of the nikah and they can do that after the three-month period at any time after that. However, if the husband then, in that case, has been having remarried the wife, then divorces her again, and they go through the same three-month period of idda, and they have not reconciled after that, then again they are considered to have uh, uh, divorced, and they, they, they are separated, husband and wife. But that is the second talaq, which they can remarry still after that by having a new nikah performed. So after, just for the interests of our viewers, after we've talked about the three stages of pronouncing it, three occasions after the first stage, and they then decide to reconcile, um, they would need to have a new nikah pronounced. That, that is correct. But thereafter, the, the period, if they choose not to reconcile, then the husband can pronounce it for the second time and then... No, after that first three-month period, they are divorced. They are he does divorced. not have to pronounce it. According to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and this is from the traditions of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu we consider that, that one talaq given, and if the three-month period has expired, that is sufficient for them to be divorced as such. The only th difference in the third talaq is that if they do remarry after the second time and they divorce after that, 
then they cannot remarry Marry. each other. So, so that has got to be clear. As far as this scenario is concerned, because the husband died before the end of that Idda period, then we, we, they're still married as such. That's very clear. Jazakumullah, Dr. Saheb, and my thanks also to Bushra Mahmood Saiba for her question. We're going to move to North America for our next question, which comes from Saad Iqbal. Assalamu alaikum, Saad Saheb. Uh, thank you for your question. Um, Qasr Saab, he says he's come across a hadith from one of the uh, uh, well-respected traditions uh, or re respected books, Muslim, of hadith as well, which seem to suggest that the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, prohibited <coughs> the use of the black color to dye hair. Is this a correct interpretation of the hadith? And he's then gone on to actually quote the particular hadith from Muslim. Well, the tradition, uh, yeah, I mean, you've read it out. The tradition literally is that changed this with something. I mean, the, the companion who came to the Holy Prophet, وسلم, he, his beard and his hair was, you know, extremely white, white. And they've yeah. given the example of a plant whose flowers and uh, um, fruit are completely white. <clears throat> now, what we have to understand is that at times the ahadith, they mention things which are not a principle, a generalized principle for everyone. In this hadith, the Holy Prophet وسلم, is telling him to change the color of his beard, which is obviously something exclusive to that individual, mm -hmm. because we know that everyone whose beards or hair turn white, um, the condition isn't for everyone to have their hair or beard, you know, the, the color of that changed. In this, the Holy Prophet وسلم, is giving him his own sort of uh, preference for that individual. And the, the example of such a hadith can... <clears throat> also be understood from how in some ahadith or traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he has given the advice to some people to offer the vitr prayer, which is the last um, you know, prayer that one says before going to sleep, usually at Isha time. He has instructed some to offer that at the Isha prayer before going to sleep. But at times he has instructed some people to offer that after the Tahajjud prayer and before the Fajr prayer, which is the early morning prayer. And that is according to the, you know, the varying scenarios. So the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad's hadiths include such things which are not principles generalized for the whole of the Muslim Ummah, but at times will be generalized for that person. And so for, you know, it's for us to pick um, what we want to do, whether we want to offer, for instance, when we're talking about the Vitr prayers, whether we want to take this option or whether we want to take this option. And the Holy Prophet وسلم, in this manner has given us, um, you know, other options as well, that it just doesn't necessarily have to be black. You can dye your hair in other color. And I'm, I think the Holy Prophet وسلم, he used to use a color which is quite Mendy-like. Um, henna. Henna, exactly. Yeah. And he would, he would put that on at times. So, you know, we've got different options there, and that is because the Holy Prophet وسلم, was the um, perfect example and had to show us, and did show us, uh, the various parts in terms of, you know, these things, which are day-to-day -day issues. Jazakumullah, Qasif Saab, and my thanks also to Saad Iqbal Saab for his question. We're going to stay in Canada for our next question, which comes from Nasser Chaudhary Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Nasser Sahib. Uh, again, thank you very much for your kind words about Faith Matters and the team effort that goes on here. Jazakumullah, thank you for uh, your support in that regard as well. Um, uh, Dr. Saib, he's asking, again, it goes back to something we've touched upon, albeit briefly, in one of the previous questions. He says, we know it's wrong to think that one's above one's, 
another person or superior to another fellow human being um, and that everyone is made equally but does it then make wrong is it wrong rather to suggest that one may be inferior to someone else or is that equally on the same sort of kind of footing as taking a superior I know and we talk about this so again let's talk about where we are society we mm. live in someone sometimes challenges someone and says well that's down to your inferiority complex that you think you're below me or you don't have the self-confidence to stand up but equally we talked about arrogance before that those people who think they're better than others are then said to be arrogant well are these two two sides to the same coin I, I guess I'm asking well to a degree Or they are Nasser Saab is asking, Nasser Saab is asking. <laughs> to a degree they are but we, we have to come back to the question of superiority mm -hmm. uh, and although Nasser Saab does allude to the fact that we are all made equal in perhaps in the sight of God Almighty and as far as human beings are concerned but we should never forget the uh, farewell sermon of the mm -hmm. Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he said to a hundred thousand people gathered for the final pilgrimage that I, I'm about to tell you something for your benefit and for the benefit of those people who have not joined you it is your responsibility to pass this on so that is how the final pilgrimage has been passed upon to us and he made it absolutely clear categorically clear that no one is superior to another one in that respect that no Arab is superior to a non-Arab mm -hmm. and no non-Arab is superior to uh, uh, an Arab and also as far as colors were concerned he made it clear from that aspect as well that there is no superiority in any of the colors that that man man has so that is one aspect of superiority as far as that is concerned but at the same time we when we look at society we know that some people have been given a status perhaps it has been given by God Almighty for whatever reason or perhaps it has been conferred upon them by society as, as such and therefore we obviously know where our standing is mm -hmm. as far as those people are concerned so that is something that we do realize that as far as human uh, um, qualities are concerned or human progress is concerned or where you are in society that there are some people who will always be superior to other people as far as their duties in society are concerned so there is always one has to understand that and to be able to take that on board but as far then comes the subject of arrogance and humility in that respect that if you consider yourselves to be inferior to other people then is that not uh, trampling on your self-respect in that respect no that that is different because in the sight of God Almighty we are equal in, in that respect and therefore we should not consider that we are inferior because God has given us the same capacities and capabilities of other people around us that we are able to elevate our, our, our status in society to uh, the best of our abilities so we should always understand it that yes we have been all made equal no race is superior to another race but God has given capacities and capabilities to other people around us who perhaps are going to be superior to us in that respect for that Dr. Saab and just as a sort of final point the whole issue of governance reflects this Gassab Saab as well I mean whether we're talking about governments generally but even I mean taking the example of the MDM Muslim community there are specific ways that the community is organized uh, specific elections that take place specific office bearers that have so for example within a country you have a national president and the Mir um, as they're known that again is a reflection of the regard and respect which should be shown to the office irrespective of who that office 
bearer is because they've been entrusted with that position. Absolutely. Islam does teach us that we should um, you know, respect the authorities above us or whoever they may be. And if someone is given a responsibility or is given a position without running for it, um, and you know it's been bestowed or given to him, then one should have respect for that. Um, and there are various you know uh, proverbs and um, general um, common you know phrases that we know of that um, that testify to this that we should show respect to such people. However, um, I want to come to a, uh, you know what Dr. Saab was mentioning that actually reminds me of an incident and this whole question. Uh, that incident took place in the time of the promised Messiah, Azad Mirza Ghulam Ahmed may peace be upon him, and. Um, you know, there was an Ahmadi Imam and uh, they, him and one other companion, they were talking amongst themselves. And through humility, or, you know, we're talking about, we were talking about humility, but an extreme version of humility he expressed by saying that um, I consider myself so low that um, I do not even consider myself to be a Mormon. And he was the Imam of that mosque. And so, you know, the companion who he was addressing, he refused to offer prayers behind him. When this issue was uh, brought to the attention of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed the promised Messiah, he said, well, that individual should not have said such a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that humility is not necessarily, you should, you should at least have some good expectation of God Almighty about yourself. You know, your perception of God Almighty mm -hmm. should be positive, that at least he would accept you as a Mormon. And he shouldn't openly declare such things. But at the same time, the companion who refused to offer the prayers behind him, you know, he did wrong as well. He didn't need to go to such an extreme to not offer the mm -hmm. prayers behind him. I mean, so he, you know, he, he um, disciplined or, uh, or I would um, put it, he guided both in this regard. That that humility is an extreme version of humility and that isn't necessary. So like we were saying before, you know, about wordy um, or superficial humility, that is not necessary. Actions speak louder than words. And it is in this, you know, the, the, the question is asking um, about inferiority and superiority. That obviously alludes to the question that we touched before, that your self-respect should be there. And you should consider other people to be um, better than you. Because as the Prophet Muhammad in one of his couplets, he says, that you should consider yourself the low amongst people. Mm -hmm. Because... That maybe through this means you may gain acceptance at the divine threshold. Mm -hmm. So humility is a key to accept, to attaining the nearness and love of God Almighty. However, that shouldn't cripple you mm -hmm. in society. That shouldn't bring you down and not enable you to do anything. For example, and I'll finish here, when we you know, um, are filling in a CV to apply for a job, we never say that I have no skills, I can't do anything. I am the most lowest of low, and I cannot do this job, but I want you to accept me. You know, we do, uh, you know, we do accept that we have such and such qualities. That is what is necessary. Moderation is what is key. When the time calls for it, you should tell the truth. You should tell what, ha you should say it like it is, basically. But there is no need to go overboard and consider yourself superior to other beings by demeaning them or thinking ill of them or thinking low of them. Jazakum Allah for that. Very clear. Um, although I suppose uh, Nasser Saab may be thinking what the CV means. I, I think in <laughs> North America you refer to it as a resume. Uh, so just for clarification, in case you had a subsequent question, Nasser Saab, but Nasser Saab, Dr. Saab, thank you for that as well. We're going to stay in North America for our next question, which comes from Hamaynu Tahir Saab from the USA. Um, 
he's a university student at the moment, and he's actually seen that there has been um, a sort of plethora of restaurants which now exist, and particularly Arab ones who serve um, the shisha. And this, those unfamiliar, he then goes on to describe, which basically is a kind of water-based pipe which a lot of students smoke. Now, he does say that, is there a perspective on this? Particularly because these are places, there's no alcohol being served. And they're regular cafes. One, I suppose, is the question of such places being frequented by um, people. But the other thing, I suppose, also is whether such things are permissible within Islam. Dr. Saab? Well, um, the, the benefits or the harmful effects of the shisha have not been proven scientifically, so we mm. can't say whether there is a benefit in it. There's probably some harm in it of inhaling some water vapor that your lungs possibly don't need. So there could possibly potentially be some harmful effects as far as that is concerned. However, the, I think the argument is on a, on a different level, whether it's not scientifically proven or not, because we are told in the Holy Quran, anil laghwe morizun. That the, 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 the believers are those who keep away mm. from wasteful things, from things that are not going to be of benefit to them. And looking at it from a very broad angle, going and uh, partaking of the shisha in that respect is something that is wasteful as far as uh, we are concerned. And therefore, we should obviously try to stay clear from that. Um, yes, in the society's past and from the backgrounds that we come from, this was a habit that was out there and people had a, a habit like smoking is a habit in, in other parts of the world. This was a habit that some people had in that respect. But as far as um, uh, going to these places and partaking of it, then it becomes a waste. It's just not going to benefit you. It's not going to may, may harm you in, in that respect. So we would say that you should keep away from going to these places and to be becoming used to that. So you see, it's one step down the slippery line because shisha in a non-alcoholic place in one stage could then lead you perhaps to another scenario where there are uh, mixed gatherings and alcohol being served as well. So that would be the next step down. And this would be a slippery slope down towards those things which are completely forbidden in Islam. So one tries to stop it at the earlier stage and therefore one should uh, be keep, stay clear from such places and not come accustomed to these habits which are not going to be of any benefit to us. Very practical advice there, Dr. Saab. Kassar Saab? I mean, this actually, um, you know, whatever the Dr. Saab just mentioned was actually mentioned in uh, Friday's sermon only very recently on the uh, 17th of January 2014. And for the benefit of Humayun Saab, I think it would be uh, good if he goes back and listens to this Friday sermon because in this Friday sermon, the Supreme Head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat, uh, Hazrat Mirza Masoori Ahmad Saab, may Allah be his helper, he talked about specifically Shisha and said that some youth today, like, you know, how Dr. Saab put it, they think that there's no harm mm -hmm. because it's, um, it's harmless fun and it's, uh, if it's done occasionally, it, no, it's, uh, okay. It, it, it's okay. Yeah. But, the, you know, the Hazur said, His Holiness said that such things, they develop into habits and then you're opening room for other habits. Mm -hmm. And like Dr. Saab mentioned, you know, the primary verse, the basic verse of the Holy Quran is that they avoid such vain things or wasteful things. And, um, you know, Hazur gave the example of how in various countries the banning of alcohol has, uh, well, they've tried to, you know, put that into place. I mean, for instance, in the USA, that was attempted um, in the early 1900s. But that didn't go to, no, uh, to any avail because 
the people who were so habitual to it, mm. so accustomed to it, they mm. began taking alternative things which were even more harmful for them. Mm -hmm. And so they had to open that up for them. Had it, had it been avoided in the first instance, you know, their situation would have been much easier. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, you know, the age limit is gradually coming down in some areas as well for alcohol. So such things, you know, where people are opening rooms for them, room for them, for people who believe, like we were saying, you know, morality is ultimately the source of religion or God Almighty. People who believe that should actually spread, you know, morality and try and um, develop that in other societies and promote that as well, that such things, such things which are vain and have the capacity to lead you on to things which do more harm to you than good, then those things should be avoided. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks also to Humayun Sahib for his question. We're now sort of going to move into sort of three questions. Um, they're sort of short questions. It depends really on you. The both of you, good gentlemen, as to how long the responses are. Um, but the first question, uh, which are all three are posed by Farah Khan Sahiba from Germany. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for your question. Um, the first question Farah Sahiba is posing is: Does Allah Taala do everything for a reason? If we believe that we've done something which we shouldn't have done, and we hold it as a false decision, are we wrong, Doctor Sahib? Well, certainly Allah does everything for a reason. There mm. is a plan that Allah the Almighty has for the universe and for us as individuals. So, uh, but at the same time, Allah has given us capacity to make decisions. And this is where we are at freedom to make decisions, which uh, obviously we have a choice over. So it's like going down a, a path and then we have uh, a fork. We come to a fork and we have a decision mm -hmm. to go that in that direction or in that direction, taking into account all possibilities and considering all the, uh, all the facts about which path to take. So Allah has given us this capacity to take on board such things and then to make a decision based upon that. Mm -hmm. So to say that uh, was it God Almighty who actually got me to, to go down that route, or did I have free will? You certainly had free will because Allah had given you a choice to go that Allah knew which mm. direction you may have gone into, but you were in control of which direction that you were going into. So as far as that is concerned, Allah does have a reason for everything and he has created everything that he has for a reason. But it is a, an incorrect conception to say that, well, I had no control over this. It was Allah's doing and therefore I should not be held accountable for whatever I have committed. That is not correct. Allah has given you a choice as far as that is concerned. And therefore, the choice was yours. Allah had given you all the information and you made that choice. And the faculties to go with it. As and well. the faculties absolutely to go with it. The understanding and the, how to uh, formulate those decisions in, were given to you. Jazakumullah, Dr. Sahib. Um, the second question uh, Farah Sahib was posing, Qasid Sahib, is around marriage. That if someone receives a marriage proposal, which they don't <coughs> feel satisfied with, from the outset, they then go and, as is advised, they go and pray on that particular proposal. They still do not feel comfortable. Is that Allah telling them, basically, this isn't right for them? I mean, it could be. Uh, who am I to say that's between, you know, that's their relationship with uh, God Almighty, whether they feel that that is the case. I mean, it, it varies very, really from person to person. Um, but what we need to realize is that like you've said, prayer is essential. You know, the common practice is to pray 
for a certain number of days with a completely neutral heart. And this is what has been specifically taught by the Promised Messiah, mm-hmm. and he has obviously taken this from the Holy Prophet Muhammad that you should pray for a certain number of days. Mm-hmm. Um, at times it's been recommended to be 40 days with a neutral heart. And you should, um, you know, the du'a istikhara is something which is, um, w- which is a prayer that we've been taught in which we pray that, oh Allah, if this is beneficial for me, then make this my decree, decree mm. this for me. But if it's not good for me, then shun it away from me, you know, completely take it away from me. What we also have to remember is that this isn't du'a istikhara where we're requesting some sort of a sign or divine, you know, uh, inspiration. We're actually seeking guidance from God Almighty. After those 40 days, it depends really how your heart feels. I mean, yes, at times God Almighty, um, you know, can show you through a dream. Mm. Uh, but dreams, obviously, they are also at times very difficult to understand. And merely to rely on a dream um, can be um, sometimes difficult. But what we need to realize is, like, like the question has mentioned, if a person is satisfied, you know, from the heart, then one should go ahead with it. But if someone isn't satisfied, then, you know, the Holy Prophet has given an option and always used to encourage that you should get as much, um, you know, contentment of the heart as possible. So if a person hadn't seen uh, the, the other party or the wife or the, you know, the girl or the boy, if they haven't seen each other, then he would encourage them to at least see each other once. And um, if need be, they can talk to each other. After that, if they do feel that they are, you know, they, they do match, then they can go ahead with the proposal. No one's forcing them. No one should be forcing them. Um, and this is what we need to bear in mind, that no two people are made exactly similar. And even if they are, um, are made similar, you know, the, the, there is the phrase that opposites attract. If they are made similar, they like the th- same things. Even that can bring, you know, uh, conflicts or clashes. So what we have to bear in mind, you know, there, there are completely, mm. there are very diverse situations and we have to bear them in mind. But the bottom line is really, that if you are satisfied, you should go ahead with it. If you aren't satisfied, then if you've prayed, once you've prayed, after seeking God's help, it is a very difficult decision, but with the help of Allah, it is made easy. And then you can take that step further. Um, if, it, if you're not satisfied, then you, you, know, you should mm-hmm. look elsewhere. When you make a decision on marriage, uh, Dr. Sahib, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was also very clear that in choosing your respective partners, there were you know, how one should mm. go about looking upon it. Of course, prayer and the essence of prayer and the istikhara and having the sense, but also to look at a level of compatibility between two individuals. Perhaps you could just speak Absolutely. briefly. Yes, it's, uh, the Holy Prophet وسلم, has given uh, directives in this manner as far as marriage proposals are concerned and how one should go about the selection of your partner. And of course, prayer is at the foremost of your actions, that this is something that you need to pray to Allah uh, for the blessings that are accounted for. But he has also said that when you choose your partner, then a man looks at certain physical attributes that may be in in, in the other party, Uh, maybe their beauty, maybe their family, maybe their financial status. But he said the one that gives preference to the taqwa or the righteousness of that person that is what one should always put at the forefront of your selection process because then everything else falls into line. Once you have a person who is righteous, then a person who will lead a life within the teachings and commandments of your faith, then that is the journey that becomes easy for you as far as the, mm-hmm. your life process concerned. 
So that is the basis that the Holy Prophet <coughs> laid down and, and, and there is great wisdom in, in, in that respect. Yes, one can also look at the beauty and the finances and the, uh, uh, and the family of the person. Of course, that is where compatibility comes into. They have to be on the same sort of level as you are because if there are very big differences as far as that is concerned, then they may become a point of conflict as, mm -hmm. as such. So that is why compatibility from that angle is extremely important. But the one element that the Prophet um, emphasized upon was the righteousness of that person, and that is how we find that there is success in that respect. Dr. Saab, for your very detailed answers, both personalized answers as well. Farah Saiba has one final question. Um, it's how would a person know that Allah Ta'ala is happy or unhappy with someone? Qasid Saab? Well, this is um, you know, something that we all want to desire, but we all have the desire to know. Uh, whether Allah is happy or unhappy with us and at the same time you know we should pray for such things that uh, you know we do attain the pleasure of Allah because in one place the Holy Prophet wasallam has mentioned three types of people one is those people who fear the hellfire and pray to God Almighty to avoid the hellfire one party is such who pray for to, you know the entry into paradise and then there is another party and the Prophet Muhammad has said that this is the most um, exalted um, you know, these people are the most exalted in status who pray for the pleasure of Allah, the mere pleasure of Allah. This is something that we always need to pray for. But at the same time, I would like to say that, you know, we see the prophets, um, peace be upon them all, the Holy Prophet wasallam, was given the glad tidings of, you know, uh, attaining the, um, the pleasure of God Almighty and attaining the um, entry into paradise after his demise. And, you know, an incident that we're all aware of is when Hazrat Aisha asked Razila she asked the Holy Prophet وسلم, why he would pray so earnestly and supplicate to God Almighty, despite having been told that he is gaining entry into paradise. And he said that, oh Aisha, should I not be God's um, thankful servant? So we find that even after such a status, you know, the people of God, they would always continue to... Um, either be thankful to God Almighty or to earnestly pray for their fellow beings, for Islam, for the propagation of Islam to God Almighty. And it wasn't just self, um, you know, it wasn't circulated around, it wasn't um, encompassed around themselves, their prayers. Another in example is of the companions, God Almighty says regarding them that anhum wa an, that God Almighty, they are pleased, God Almighty is pleased with them and they are pleased with God Almighty. So, you know, God does tell his um, very, you know, noble people that they, God Almighty is happy with them and content with them. But we have to remember that this is a very high status when one can, uh, that one can attain. In the Holy Quran, there is another verse which states, Ya nafsul that, O soul at rest, that return to your Lord in a um, content state and happy state. From this we understand that the soul at rest is being called back to Allah, which means that at the time of one's demise, that is when you reach that final, you know, the, 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 the highest rank that you can reach of throughout your life. That is the time when your Lord is calling your soul back to where it has come from, and that is ultimately the divine uh, being, Allah the Almighty. So it is very difficult to find out whether 
you are whether Allah the Almighty is happy with you or unhappy with you. That is an individual thing that everyone should be able to feel for themselves. You know, like Allah the Exalted told the Holy Prophet وسلم, in a hadith Qudsi that Ana indazanne abdibi that I am with my servant according to his perception of me, according to what he thinks of me. For every individual from this hadith we can understand that for every individual his case with his Lord is different. So how you perceive God is how God Almighty will be with you. If you consider him to be the most forgiving, the most merciful, but at the same time you do try and put your effort into doing good, then God Almighty, inshallah, will treat you accordingly in that, you know, in that beautiful manner. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.